Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. All intros here. This is, uh, I'm on the Finding Backcountry Podcast episode. I believe this will be episode 30 um, with Todd Orr. And, you know, I I don't know Todd or I don't know you um, from anything other than just social media. Um, But that being said, I mean, you know, you you had a a pretty big event a couple of years ago that went to went mainstream and and we'll we'll, I think, have a chance to get into that. But, um, you know, since reaching out to you, um, I was just telling you all the talking points that that we're going to have to talk about. Um, when I kind of started getting some information from you and, um, you know, you, you're in Montana, is that right? I'm in Montana, Southwest Montana. Yes. Yeah. I raised here and grown up here. So just right right in the heart of just some of the, some of God's country right there, huh? Just, it really is. Yeah. It's just beautiful country around here. A lot of wildlife, a lot of mountains. It's got every outdoor activity you can think of to do here. And I can't imagine living anywhere else. Yeah. Are you guys, uh, you guys still getting buried in snow, like kind of a late spring winter type deal going on up there? Or? We, we have been this year. It's been kind of crazy. Just over the weekend, uh, the local ski resort got 30 inches of snow and we, they already have 10 feet and up to 30 inches on top of that. We got four or five inches in town here, but it's uh, back up in the sixties now. So it's melting out, hmm. but there's probably more snow in the mountains than we've had all season, all year. So I think there's like 115 inches up at a couple of the, the weather sites up high. The, so it's full on winter still. The diehard snowboarders are just loving it. I'm sure the skiers. Oh yeah. Yeah. The skiers and snowboarders are having a good time and, uh, the wildlife is probably not liking it much. Yeah. You know, I'm no weather expert, but to me, just from my recollection of the last, like maybe five years, does it just seem like we're having like we have late, you know, the, the falks or the summer stays around longer and we kind of have these mild falls lately. And then we're having just these brutally long, uh, winters that won't go away in the spring. Or is that just me making that up? Well, it seems like it's, it changes a lot around here. I mean, I see that a couple of years in a row and then all of a sudden we got a different pattern yeah. last year. We had, you know, an early, uh, winter or fall winter storm came in in October and it just never left. We had winter from there on out. And it's just been hanging on now. We didn't have any really big warm spells this winter, so we've had a lot of snow. And it just seems to keep coming in. Every week we get another storm, and it's finally this week. It's now warming up into the 60s, but it's been like we had the teens just a week ago. It was down to like 10 degrees or something like that, so kind of kind of strange. Well, and it's just, you know, down here where we're at, um, I'm in southern Nevada, and so we're, you know, we're right next to the Arizona Strip and, like, Mm-hmm. The, you know, Southern Utah, the Pontagon, all these desert, uh, you know, uh, Southeastern Nevada that's known for its desert. And for us down here, I think we're oblivious to that kind of side of it because for us down here, we look forward to those wet, uh, you know, the, the winters, a, a brutal winter doesn't really mean much for us down here because 
sure you know it just doesn't it doesn't amount to much and then we're actually we always look forward to you know if we can get those april may june uh march april may spring thunderstorms and a bunch of wet rain and stuff like that i mean that's like the ticket you know everyone's trying to draw draw tags that year but i think for you guys up there it's like oh man like you know those uh, you know i i don't don't know if it's one of those years yet or not but you guys may be on the verge of uh you know some winter kill from stuff like this is that right that's it's very possible yeah i mean some of the winter usually the winter range around here is down in the valleys and it's pretty safe but um just those animals getting back up into the higher country and um it's definitely going to be tougher this year and I know usually about the about the middle of April this time of year, I'm looking at a few lower mountain lakes to see if they're just starting to ice off to get in and do some spring fishing. And I can't even get at, get access to any of those lakes right now. It's just uh, four feet of snow still where usually I can, you know, drive in or get close hiking. It's just full full on winter and it will be good maybe for the for the fire season for us around here, though. A wet spring is always, uh, you know, get a little bit more moisture in the ground and hopefully keep the fires away. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, you kind of grew up in the outdoors. Um, talk about kind of t- start talking about your first uh, outdoor experiences, um, as a kid, even maybe before your hunting, you mentioned fishing just okay. barely. Was that kind of where you got started? Yeah. I moved to Montana when I was, uh, it was the summer before second grade. So I was like seven years old and my dad was a fish hatchery manager and we moved to a little town of Ennis here in southwest Montana, and it's right on the, the famed Madison River. And so we pulled into the fish hatchery, and the moving van had not you know, showed up yet. So Dad's like, hey, let's jump in the Jeep and head down to the river, <clears throat> and uh, let's you know, try to catch fish. So I'd been in Montana basically just for a few hours and hadn't even moved into our house yet. Dad put a fly rod in my hand, and I'm down there on the Madison River learning how to fly fish. So that was kind of the start of it all. And it just kind of kept going from there. We were fishing every evening and hiking and hunting and just exploring all of this country around here. It was just a great way to grow up and to just learn, you know, about the land and about the wildlife. That's that's how you know you're going to fit in in Montana is if you've unpacked your <laughs> fishing rods before, before you've even un- unpacked your house exactly. or anything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. you're going to add, fit in just fine. <laughs> yeah, to add to that story, as we're moving here this is back in the 70s <clears throat> and uh, we had like a you know just a station wagon your typical station wagon that we were all traveling in we were about an hour from ennis and we'd stopped to get gas in this town and there was a note on the wall there in the gas station that said a moving sale and a guy was selling a toyota land cruiser jeep and dad's like well we're in montana this station wagon isn't going to cut it anymore and so we went and bought this land cruiser jeep and so dad and i drove in the jeep back to the or to the new place and mom and my brother drove in the station wagon so before we even got to our destination we had a four-wheel drive jeep ready to get into the mountains and do some (laughs) four-wheel driving oh man that's awesome that's uh (laughs) You're one of two people that I know that grew up in a fish hatchery uh, setting, and the other one just happens to be my wife. Okay. She, uh, her, her dad was the uh, same thing. He worked at a fish hatchery uh, when they were kids growing up. And so, yeah, just, I mean, I don't know if your situation is like hers, but they had a, you know, out in kind of a, a set-aside government housing that, you know, was right mm-hmm. on site. Yep. And same, same deal. Same thing. Yes, same thing. And just it was like a 150 acre hatchery and had a big spring growing, came right out in the middle of the hatchery in a big creek. And so as a kid, we would get on inner tubes and float down the creek. And we'd 
hike around. There's a big uh, old buffalo jump that was right on the fish hatchery as well. So we'd be exploring around this old buffalo jump, and there were some caves up there, and we were doing a bunch of caving as a kid and shooting BB guns and had a bunch of trails for riding dirt bikes and a lot of those things that you couldn't do today on a, on a government <laughs> property. But back then, you could get away with just about anything. So we had a – there's probably a half a dozen families that lived on the hatchery, all with kids around my age. So you just had a group of guys to go bicycling with or shooting BB guns or hiking or whatever we were doing. It was a great place to grow up and about 12 miles out of town. So it was in the, in the country right at the base of the mountain range and just beautiful area. Just a kid, uh, an adventurous kid's dream, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Daylight to dark every day. You're just out there doing something and you're never inside. We never watched any TV and it was always outside exploring. So you, you transitioned from BB guns and uh, running around with your buddies to uh, big game hunting when you were old enough. Is it 12 or 14 in Montana? It's uh, 12 years old in Montana. You can start hunting. I think okay. now they have even if would be a little bit younger if you're with an adult for the first week or something. They have some things going on. But yes, 12 years old back when I was a kid. Yeah. And so it was opening of uh, the season and I had, you know, hunting with a rifle and, uh, opening day ran into a nice big five by five bull elk and shot him on opening morning. And we got that out. And the next morning, dad's like, well, let's go up and look for a buck and ran into about a 24 inch wide five by five muley buck. And on the second day, so on the opening weekend, I, I killed both, filled both of my tags. And so I remember going back to school. I'm, you know, 12 years old, and everybody's like, oh, did you get out hunting? And I'm like, yeah, I got out and filled both my tags. And I remember all the kids thought I was like the god of hunting or something, you know, and I was so proud, my chest all puffed up, puffed up. And, and then I realized it wasn't that easy the next year, you know, I just got lucky the first year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was just listening to someone else's podcast. I can't remember, maybe it was, uh, I think it was Cody Rich, uh, and he's talking with a guy about hunting in Montana, and he was talking about, how much of the culture in Montana is like elk hunting. And it's like, like the whole culture revolves around, like, did you get your elk this year or not? You know, and I'm sure right. <laughs> as a, especially as a 12 year old kid, you were, like you said, you were just, you know, Michael Jordan of the hunting world. Like, Oh exactly. my gosh, you, yeah. you killed a five, <laughs> five by five bull your first year, first day. Yeah. First day, first weekend, filled the tags and you know, most kids didn't even see anything. So yeah. I just right place, right time. And, my dad was a good guide, I guess. So got lucky. You know, we didn't uh, we didn't grow up elk hunting. Um, it was just not as big down here as it uh, back then. I don't think, and we weren't into it. But um, I also killed. You know, my first few years, um, I was able to draw tags and kill uh, mule deer bucks. My first few years hunting, and mm -hmm. just absolutely hooked me. Talk about just the importance of youth hunters like their first experience and having a good experience and then you know and and finding that success i mean talk about the importance of that for you especially oh absolutely just uh, you get addicted to that and just wanted to be outside and it's like i didn't care about any of the the tv shows or being inside it didn't matter what the weather was doing i just wanted to be outside wanted to get the exercise wanted to look for the animals and i, I kind of got into you know, not just wanting to, to kill an animal, but it's wanting to experience being close to it and what it was like and to see it and to try to get photographs of it as I got older and get pictures. And, you know, nothing like being in the middle of an elk herd and having, you know, cows and calves all around you and they're cow talking and calves are chatting and they're back and forth and you can see them moving, you can hear them chewing, they're so close. And then all of a sudden you've got a big 
mature bull that bugles from like 50 yards away and the trees just about rattle if it's so loud and just uh and just to learn the everything about the wildlife and how to protect the land and to live off the land and and respect it and you know my dad always taught me he's like you don't go four-wheeling off road and tear up any places and you don't do this and just it was just something that became part of me and I'll just never forget those days when we were out there camped and hunting and just hiking and early in the morning or even in the dark before hunting, you know, before the season opened and just hiking around, exploring and trying to find those animals and find out where they're at and get pictures of them and just experience that whole thing as a kid. It was just wonderful. And it's, it's turned my whole life that direction in a sense, just I'm all about the outdoors, the exercise. And I think that's important. Just, uh, the more you're outside, I mean, kids nowadays, they just want to be on their iPhones and their smartphones and their, you know, the television and the computer and, and they're not getting the exercise. They're not, you know, learning what's out there to see. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a lot of discussion right now in the hunting world, um, because there's a general consensus. I, it sounds like that, you know, we're supposedly we're losing hunters, uh, every year or over the course of, you know, the last 10 or 20 years or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. the, the sales of hunting licenses, they talk about dropping and, and I, I don't know where they come up with that data. And what I, what I did hear is that it's not as simple as <clears throat> just tallying up, you know, all of the hunting license sales, which to me seems like it should be fairly easy. Um, right. but the way it was explained when I heard it was that they can't do that. But the, the point that I'm making is, you know, if, if that's true, if we're losing hunters, uh, or, you know, the the baby boomers are are retiring from hunting so to speak or just getting too old to really get out or whatever like i think of my grandpa you know he loved to hunt and now it's just you know he's 80 something and he just doesn't hunt anymore Um, but the the point i was making and the and the the relating it to your story is you know if the the one thing that we can do for sure is get you know that we have to do is keep the the youth hunters that you know that are that are our kids uh, keep them having good experiences right off. And that's going to keep the hunting population up more than anything. Um, Oh, I agree. Yeah, I think so. I think just getting kids, kids involved in different programs that can get them excited and get them out there and see some of those things that, that other people have maybe never seen. I mean, I talked to so many people and they're like, Oh, I'm still trying to find my first elk. You know, I've never Mm -hmm. killed an elk, but it's like, you know, I've never been close enough to a big bull. And it's like getting into those experiences, especially as a, as a child has just, it just changes your life and gets you, gets a whole new feeling of how you respect the wildlife and, and what you want to do for your enjoyment. You want to get out instead of get off a, off the bus after school and you want to go to the field, you want to go to the woods. I think that's very important to try to keep programs out there that will keep kids involved and teach them conservation and wildlife management. Yeah. Well, and the, and the other thing that was came to mind while you're saying that is, you know, I've had a couple of, of buddies, um, that have shown interest in hunting and, you know, they're 20 something, 30 somethings and, and thought, oh yeah, I'd like to get into hunting. Well, the reality is like when someone's that established in their life and they've never hunted before, it's, it's like a huge bite to chew off. It's, it seems like, mm-hmm. and they, and they actually, the couple guys that I've, um, had that experience with, they haven't been able to make it happen. You know, they're, they're set in their kind of their life that they've had for 20, 30 years. They may probably have a family, they're married, they've got their job and there's just a lot going on. I think it's so much easier to, 
you know, to take a 12 year old out when you're their parent or you're their uncle or whatever, um, you know, because they just, they don't have a lot going on in life and it's easier to get them involved at that point. And then it's going to take care of itself for them, you know, like, I like think you so too. But, yeah, I agree. It's like, as you get older, you just have so much in your life and it's hard to find the time yeah. and you're like, okay, I'm going to go away this weekend and something comes up and cuts you off and you can't get out there and then you put it off. And I think as a kid, you're just like, all right, get in the car, let's go, let's do this. And they, hey, they're all of a sudden they're loving life and they're out there realizing there's so much they haven't seen yet that I think can carry on through their entire life. Does Montana do a good job of issuing uh, youth tags? I know um, Nevada has done a pretty good job, in my opinion, of setting aside tags. And I know some states do really well. What's, what's Montana's uh, youth tag situation? Well, for Montana, anybody, if you're a resident, you can buy a tag right over the counter. So it's unlimited for, you know, for anybody at that, <clears throat> in that situation. Um, for an out-of-stater to come here, there, I'm not sure if there's a special, you know, something special for a child, for youth. But, uh, you know, it's always a drawing and it's kind of limited. But for resident, uh, any kid that's 12 years old can go to the go to the store, go to the hunting store and or sporting goods store and buy a tag over the counter. So no limit there. Which is really all you can ask. I mean, you know, typically a 12 year old isn't the one that needs to be hunting, you know, six different States, uh, throughout the West. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like if their home state has a, a liberal, uh, tag allocation, then that's, you know, that's all that you could ask or all that we really need. um, Sure. And that that would be for, for, um, deer and elk and like a bear or fishing. If you want to apply for moose or goat or sheep, you still have to do a drawing for that. Even if you're a resident. What about antelope? Antelope is uh, over the, well, it's a drawing, but some districts it's kind of a hundred percent, excuse me, a hundred percent drawing. Other districts uh, would be a, you know, a limited. Awesome. Yeah. You, you, I think were the exception with your bull elk. I, I, I actually think an antelope hunt is like perfect for a youth hunter. Um, as, as long as you keep the, the shot distance down, it seems like, but they're just, right. they're just yep. antelope hunt is just a fun hunt. You know, it's not <laughs> it hardcore is. back country. You don't have to throw a pack on or use horses. Typically, you know, you did do a lot of glassing and you eat really well and you can usually stay in a camper or a tent or whatever. It's yep. just, and then yeah, locate them from the truck and then find a way to sneak in up a little draw or a coolie and see what you can find. Yeah. So fat, um, kind of push and play here on, on your hunting, uh, life, you, you killed mm-hmm. that bull and that buck. And then, um, you actually started hunting the backcountry after that. And we're kind of hunting alone. Is that right? Yes. After I think that first, that first year I was with my dad on both the elk and my deer. And then the next year, dad was like, all right, you spent enough time in the woods. Let's go up here. He would split off and to go one direction, I'd kind of circle another direction and we'd plan to meet up on top of the ridge. And so I was kind of on my own. So my second year, I shot my elk by myself and then had to go back and get my dad to have him help me kind of gut it out and everything. But I shot it on my own. And then just over the years, I think it was my third year, I was 14 years old. I got into bow hunting. So my dad had been a bow hunter and I'd been following him around in the woods and actually kind of reminds me of another story when I was like seven or eight years old and dad shot his first elk here in Montana and he had shot it pretty late in the evening and had to hike a few miles out. And then it was a big snowstorm at the end of the season in November and it took him quite a while to get back off the mountain home. And then he's like, well, I got an elk up there still and it's really snowing heavy. So we need to get back up and try to get it out tonight before the road gets snowed in. 
So we talked to the, the guy next door, the neighbor. And so my dad and this other guy and myself, and we jumped in the Toyota Land Cruiser Jeep and had to chain up all four wheels and headed up uh, the side of the mountain and kind of pushing snow with the bumper. And then it was like 10 o'clock at night now and it's dark and it's snowing heavily. And I remember just being with like flashlights hiking up this canyon and the snow was like up to mid thigh or my waist almost on me. And just the experience of that, just following my dad and this other guy up this canyon. And all of a sudden, here's this elk that dad had shot and pushed down off the hill to the trail. And we cut it up in pieces and remember taking two or three hours to drag it back down to the road and get that thing out of there in the middle of the night. And just uh, that experience just got me into to hunting so much and to follow my dad anytime he would take me. So during bow season, I was at camp with him and his buddies and following him around. He'd be teaching me things about the elk and about their habitat and where to find them and what to do. And that just got me more into being like, okay, bow season. I want to learn how to bow hunt. I want to extend my season. So got into bow hunting at age 14. And I think I was about 16 when I shot my first elk with a bow, shot a five by six bull with a bow. What advice, what what advice, or, you know, from your experience as a, as the kid in this situation, what advice uh, would you give to parents that have a child that wants to, you know, go out and hunt alone? Because I don't think a lot do, but I think there are plenty that, that would go hunt alone if their parents would let them. It's, it seems like today the, the parents are so much more protective of their children. They don't even want them to walk across the street on their own. And back in the you know 70s and 80s, things were a lot different. We just did everything on our own and you got hurt and you got injured and you drug yourself back to the house and mom, you know, cleaned you up. But that was just kind of the way it was. They didn't have time to, to follow you around or to take you everywhere. And you just had to learn it on your own. And I think it all depends on the area, you know, I mean, as far as like, if you're out in the woods, there's, you know, there's things to watch out for, but there's places that people can go and maybe say, okay, I'll meet you up on that Ridge. And if the kid is familiar with, you know, where he's at and can see that location and, plan on, you know, letting him go for a while or letting him just explore and learn how to do it on his own and make decisions. And I think that's a big thing. Just part of growing up is making decisions on your own and deciding, is this the right direction? Am I, am I lost? Do I need to backtrack? I need to pay more attention to what's going on around me. And I think it just builds character and it builds just a person down the road. That's going to be able to take care of themselves better. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, th- I think you're right. I think nowadays um, the the things that parents would let their kids do, you know, 20, 30 years ago um, is, is kind of going away. And, and maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's for the better and maybe it's not, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not a parent. And so I'm the one guy that, you know, can sit here and say this and say that and, you know, not mm-hmm. know, not know what I'm talking about, but um, <laughs> you know, for, for me right now, you know, regardless of what, year it is i mean you guys are in southwest montana and i've got a, a 14 15 16 year old boy that wants to hunt alone um mm-hmm. and, you, and you guys are were, were you in the heart of grizzly bear country at that time uh, i mean well there wasn't near as many grizzly bears back then um back in the 70s and 80s you'd see one or two like in a 10-year period and you might see a track and you'd hear about them in yellowstone park but we really didn't see many around, but there's a lot more nowadays. They're just expanding everywhere. Their, their territory is larger. You see a lot more sign and we never worried about it back then. It was just like, you take off. I never saw grizzly bear until I was probably in college and we'd see black bears occasionally, but usually never a problem. 
So that has kind of changed in that sense in this area. You have to be definitely more, more careful, um, you know, more aware of what's going on out there and be prepared for that kind of a situation. And there's some areas that are a lot more bears than there than, than others. So I'd be like, okay, I wouldn't send a kid up this drainage by himself unless he's really well prepared. But there's other areas where there's like, well, the, the odds of a grizzly bear here are very slim, probably not an issue. So, right. but I, I hate to keep people from going into the woods and living their life and, and experiencing those things by scaring them out of the woods too at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and Will, I mean, anyone who's familiar with you is familiar with your, your I think, your story a couple of years ago on the grizzly bears, and we'll circle back to that for sure. Sure. Um, what advice would you give to, a, say, a 14, 15, 16-year-old, uh, or, or really anyone, for that matter, that's maybe just getting into hunting or um, but is going to go on their first, you know, solo backcountry hunting trip? Well, their first solo trip, uh, the biggest thing is just be prepared and to know the area, have a map if you need it. And to get out there, if you're, you know, GPS is easy to use nowadays. Back when I was a kid, all we had was a topo map and you kind of learned how to read a map. But now everybody's got a GPS. Kids are going, what's a topo map? Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But, uh, you know, be familiar with the area and know, you know, Pay attention where you're at and where you're going. Watch around you as you're going hiking into some countries. So you kind of see what get familiar with the area. So if something comes up and you have bad weather or you're injured, you can find your way back out. And in the mountains, it's a lot easier maybe than out in the flats because up here you can see down. And it's like if you go downhill, you're going to hit a stream or a river and it's going to take you down to a road or something eventually. So it's pretty easy to get out of the country around here. But there's things to be aware of out there. There's bears. There's mountain lions. Um, different areas there's you know crawling over deadfall you can you can get injured and break a leg or get hurt or twist your ankle or something so guys got to pay attention you got to be careful you got to make sure you've got the right gear have good boots that are going to keep your feet dry and you're not going to have blisters and you need to have the right clothing and you never know when all of a sudden a storm blows over the ridge and you're stuck in a bunch of you know, it went from 60 to 35 degrees and it's sleeting and raining and snowing on you. And now you're soaking wet and you got to find your way out of the woods or survive or have the right things to build a fire if you need to, if you get injured. And there's a lot of things just to kind of on survival side of it. And just to, you want to make sure you're out there enjoying it. And if you're not comfortable and you're not, you know, if you have blisters on your feet or if you're cold, you're not going to enjoy it. It's going to ruin the experience for you and you may not want to go back at that point. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff to talk about there as far as trying to, to be prepared for your solo trip. But, you know, I encourage people to, to read up on it and to use a lot of common sense, I think, is a lot of it. And just have the stuff with you. You might be overpacked to start, but you'll kind of learn as you do it more what you need and don't need. And to get out there and at least give it a try. Start start small. Yeah. And then as you get more used to the terrain, you get more used to the country, you're more comfortable in the woods then make a bigger trip, maybe do an overnight trip. Talk about, yeah. And that's, that's a really good, I think that's the key. And that's, you know, that's how I even started was, um, you know, and I wasn't 14, I was probably closer to 24 um, when I did my first kind of solo backcountry, so to speak. And that, Mm -hmm. and that was the key for me was I just, I just kept it simple. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't going multiple, multiple nights. And so I didn't have a, you know, a 70 pound pack. I just had a, 30 or 40 pound pack. And I was only a couple miles, honestly, from, you know, from where I had parked or whatever. And it was just real low key and, um, pretty controlled situation, but 
Um, <clears throat> now I lost my train of thought. I was going to ask you something. Um, <laughs> well, we ta- were talking about uh, the the bow hunting, you know, and as I was growing up as a kid, and I was kind of talking about getting into the bow hunting and my first elk when I was in high school. And then I uh, got into snowboarding when I was in college, and I ended up blowing both of my shoulders out and ripped some tendons in my shoulder and dislocated my shoulders, and I couldn't pull my bow anymore. And that's when I decided, okay, I got to do something different. I don't want to go back to rifle hunting because I'd already gone into the challenge of bow hunting. <laughs> and so uh, somebody mentioned pistol hunting and I thought, okay, now it's time to try something different. I'll try pistols. So I got a, a 44 Magnum, a Ruger Super Red Hawk and started pistol hunting when I was in college. And I've shot 28 bull elk with a pistol now since then. <laughs> so over the years, I've just learned the whole different strategy of my hunting and I'm finally getting back into the bow hunting now, but the pistol hunting has been my thing for almost 30 years now. You know, I've done the opposite. I used to bow hunt for a long time exclusively, and I'm like, this is too hard. I want to go back to my rifle. <laughs> <laughs> give me give me a 6.5-300 Weatherby, and I want to dial it out to 800 yards because I'm go. tired of getting my, my butt handed to me. Um, so was pistol hunting, I mean, it's still not really a thing. You know, it's not... It's not something that you see like you see bow hunting or you see even traditional right. archery. Um, what made you or what intrigued you to get into that? I mean, I, I again, I, I understand that you were looking for the challenge, but I mean, I'm not even sure I would have thought about that or known that it existed. What what kind of turned you on to that? Well, it was, you know, wanting that challenge and knowing I couldn't bow hunt and I didn't want to go back to the rifle hunting. So there was just a guy that I was working for at the time that he's like, well, you ought to try hunting with a pistol, the handgun. And I'm like, hmm, I never thought of that. And it was just like, he just brought the idea up and it was at a, a fly shop that I was working at for the summer at a tackle shop. And so he's like, Hey, we can order a handgun, you know, through the store here and get you a good price on it and give it a try. So I ordered up this uh, Ruger 44 and a scope and started practicing that summer and figuring out how much it was going to drop at what distance, you know, what the limit was to my shooting and, and just, there's something about carrying a handgun too and a shoulder holster. It's like you get to a bunch of deadfall or a steep hill. You can put the pistol back in the holster. You got both hands free. You don't have to worry about your rifle coming off and whacking you in the side of the head or something when you're crawling over something. And it's just a lot easier to get around. And um, just somehow I just got addicted to carrying that and I didn't even care about rifle hunting anymore. And even the, the bow hunting just kind of went on the, the wayside. And it was all about the pistol and just the challenge of getting in closer. And it's kind of like, kind of like bow hunting in a sense, you got to sneak in closer. You're in the trees. I'm not out in the open trying to shoot a long distance. I'm in the timber and sneaking just like I would during bow season in a sense. And that was the challenge of it. I think more than anything that I enjoyed. And like you said, you don't see much or hear much about it. Anytime I Google something about pistol hunting or things I read, it's usually somebody shooting one with, you know, shooting a white-tailed deer mm-hmm. somewhere or shooting hogs, you know, it's big shooting, shooting pigs with pistol. But you never find much on anybody elk hunting with them, and, or very rarely anyway. Yeah. And I just, uh, around here, I don't know of anybody else that hunts with a pistol. My dad shot, when I was into it, my dad was kind of like, I want to try this. So he got a gun just like mine, got a, a pistol like mine, and he just shot it, but he never used it. He had it, but he just never used it. And he just shot his first white-tailed deer with it this uh, last fall, <laughs> white-tailed buck. What uh, what effective range? Which let me back up. Twenty eight elk with a pistol. Let let that sink yes. in with everyone who missed it. All on public land. Twenty eight yeah. bull elk on public land with a forty four mag. Was it all with the same? Tw- 
27 of them were, were with a 44 mag and one with a 10 mm auto. Okay. What, yep. uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's insane. Um, what, <laughs> what's your effective range, uh, with, you know, something like well, the 44? Yeah. Most of the animals I've shot have been probably around a hundred yards. Cause that's about what your distance in the heavy timber around here. You can see about a hundred yards you're sneaking in. Uh, the farthest offhand shot that I've done standing without a rest was 150 yards on a, on a five by five bull. And I've shot, uh, four bulls over 200 yards and that was with a rest. And, you know, I had a range finder, so I knew exactly how far they were and how much my bullet drop would be. So the, the, you know, 44 mag will do it, <clears throat> excuse me, with a 240 grain bullet. Um, it'll definitely do it, but I make sure I've got the right shot. I don't take any running shots. I, Make sure they're broadside, just turned away where I've got a good shot behind the shoulder, and I know exactly what the range is and what the yard, you know, how much the bullet drop is going to be. I don't take any chances. I don't know how many, you know, dozens or hundreds of elk over the years that were almost a shot, but I'm like, I don't want to chance it. I don't want to wound a bull. I don't want to end up hitting him in the shoulder, maybe not getting enough penetration with a pistol because it, you know, it doesn't have what a rifle does, but it's still putting it out there pretty good. And so I just don't take any chances and I miss a lot of opportunities, but you just keep trying again. You sneak back in another time and hopefully it works out. Most of the time it doesn't, but finally every, usually every year I can finally get a good shot on one and fill the tag and fill the freezer. So yeah, four, four over 200 yards. Yeah, I was, that, that to me is almost more, uh, impressive. I, I honestly was thinking you were going to say like, oh, 50 yards, you know, is, <laughs> um, what, uh, so I know when guys typically like if you're packing a pistol in in bear country or especially grizzly bear country, you don't typically want an expanding, you know, like a hollow point uh, bullet. Is that right? For yeah, that's correct. For for any kind of big game, um, you're going to want a solid point or a, something that you don't want a hollow point for sure. Something that's going to get penetration. That if you hit a bone, it doesn't just explode. Even a, a big muscle on an elk or something you know, a bullet can expand pretty easily. So you want something solid that's going to punch through, get to the vitals, and, and just put a good hole through it. And so I shoot a 240-grain soft point and uh, haven't had any issues at all. I've hit a couple of actual shoulders and or like, uh, you know, bones, and it's done good penetration even on that. So I've never lost any, never had any issue. i um, been able to drop everything within about 100 yards usually is about as far as it goes. Talk about the the optic setup for a like a pistol like that because you know I saw you you actually have a scope on there um, and for I, people who I aren't do. familiar with that how does that work and you know kind of talk about yeah that. I've uh, my first had a Leopold just a two power scope when I first got the pistol and it just wasn't quite enough you know up to a hundred yards it's it's fine it works great and then when I realized that I could shoot out a little bit farther than that I uh, got rid of that and I got a two to seven power Burris scope pistol scope. And I keep it on about five power all the time. And that's perfect for in the trees. And as, even if you're into something up close, it's enough that you can get a good shot on something still. And it works uh, works great. I've never had any problems with it. And it just makes a big difference with having a scope as far as uh, open sights, your accuracy. If I am if I have a good rest, I think my best grouping uh, was like 210 yards. I was shooting with a good rest, like on a sandbag. And uh, six shots with uh, out of the pistol and i had a, about a six inch group at 210 yards hmm. five inch group so it'll put it right in there almost like most a lot of people do with a rifle <laughs> the gun will do it it's got a nine and a half inch barrel so it's got a fairly long barrel and um, with the scope you've got the accuracy as long as you can hold still and but it takes a lot of practice you can't just go out there and expect to shoot a handgun well it 
every little thing you pull differently on that or every little movement is exaggerated. So you've got to practice. You've got to know what, what the gun does and what your abilities and, and be ready, especially if you all of a sudden jump an elk in the trees and you're standing there and it's kind of taken off and you're trying to lean against a tree for a shot. You've got a, a hurried shot. You definitely have to make sure you pull the trigger properly or you're going to you know, pull to the side and miss it by three feet. Now that's a, that's a double action pistol, I assume. Are you 100% always cocking that hammer every, I am, every yeah, shot? I am, yeah. I'm always, uh, always uh, shooting it as a single action, you yeah. know, unless that was for like better protection, you double action would be handy. But otherwise, always single action, yes. Gotcha. Yeah, and the back to the optics real quick. I mean, you know, this is probably obvious to everyone, but you, you can't just – it's got to be a pistol-specific scope right because it does it, yeah you can't uh, just slap your loophole vx2 on there from your rifle and <laughs> no you wouldn't be able, able to see, see through, through it, it unless you got it right up to your your face and then you're going to take a scope to the eye for sure but <laughs> actually yeah, if someone all... does that video it and send it in uh tag, <laughs> yeah. tag me on instagram i'd like to watch that <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a, it's extended eye relief is what it's called, and it's so when your arm is out straight, you want to be able to see through the scope. And it's tough to look through a pistol optics if you've never done it. You pull the scope up quick, and you sit there, and you're moving it back and forth, and you can't you just see a little flash of light, but you, it's hard to get it lined up. So that's where t- shooting a lot, doing a lot of practice to get to get familiar with just pulling that pistol up real quick and having instantly been able to see through it and see your animal. Now, are you, I assume you have to draw or you have to hunt the, uh, the any legal weapon season with that, right? You're hunting the rifle tags. Yes. There's no special season for a handgun around here. So I'm just hunting the regular, the regular general rifle season. And with, uh, my job, I usually am working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week up until the snow flies, trying to get as much work as we can down in the field. So then I have like the last two or three weeks of the hunting season is usually when I hunt and I'll just hunt like every other day or, you know, three days a week or something the last couple of weeks. So I'm always in the snow. I've got good tracking snow, which I like the bulls, you know, the elk have pulled the bull elk have pulled away from the herds usually. And they're back in the higher country by themselves or in small groups of males. And so I'm usually out there just looking for a, an elk track and be like, okay, I got a fresh track. How big is this track? Is it a possibility of a bull? And following him through the trees, looking at how he's meandering, if he's, you know, going around trees instead of going between them, I can say, okay, this is possibly a larger a bull or a mature bull and just trying to sneak in on him and, and kind of a totally different way of hunting strategy than what most people would. Yeah, so you're not, uh, you know, it's not like a primo setup where you've got a caller back there calling for you and he's dragging them, you know, <laughs> f- 15 feet in front of you with a pistol. I mean, you're just... You're basically just either tracking them or spotting and stalking. Exactly. Yeah, I'm just looking. That's how I do most of my hunting is just looking for tracks and trying to, or just trying to spot animals moving through the trees. You know, you have to just be, I'm totally scanning the trees ahead of me 100 yards. I take a couple steps, I stop, I'm scanning. If I see something that looks out of place, whether it's a movement or a color that's a little bit different, I stop, pull up the, the glasses, the binoculars, and take a look and be like, nope, that's a stump or that's just a scar on a tree. Or sometimes you're like, oh, that's the that back end of an elk. And so it's like, okay, now you try to figure out a strategy to move in and see what you've got. Is it spikes? Is it cows? Or do you have some big mature bulls? Yeah. And now, you know, nine out of ten times or four out of five times, they see you first or hear you or the wind switches and messes you up. And But you just got to keep after them. And uh, I'll just keep working that heavy timber and trying to get in for a shot. What's the closest shot you had with a pistol? Uh, I've got into, well, I've got in, 
I'll see, I'm trying to think how far. Probably 50, 60 yards would be the closest that I've shot. But I've been in closer and passed them up before. I do have some video from just last fall where I got into f one group of five bulls. And there was one small six-by-six six bull and some five-by-fives. And three of them were bedded down. And two were just feeding. And it was about, you know, late morning. And we just had a foot of fresh snow. And the sun was out this next day. And the wind was blowing right uphill towards me. And I got a look at all five of them. And I decided that none of them were big enough to shoot. I wanted to look for a bigger bull. And so I put the pistol back in the holster and I got my camera out and with my little video and just start sneaking in and I'm on my hands and knees or my knees kind of scooting through the snow and I take a picture and get a video and I got into 35 yards from the five point and the six point bull and I just got this close up video and they're just feeding along. You can hear them like munching on the grass and chewing on things and walking around and pawing in the snow and so I've been very close to them but uh, I think 50, 60 yards is probably the closest shot I've had. Are you, uh, if you get so close with a pistol, um, are you, are you able to like, would you even want to use the scope at that point if you got so close or do you still use in the scope or do you, can you look under the scope and use the, the iron sights or is that, yeah, I, I do not the scope I have and the setup I have, I do not have the see-through on the iron sights underneath. Okay. So I'm, you know, I can turn the scope down to two power, but if you're, you know, closer than about. 30 yards that could be an issue for sure and actually i have a that actually happened to me um 15 years ago probably i was chasing this big six by six bull elk and i'd been following him for about four miles and i kept jumping him i just could not get on him it was this heavy jungle timber and he would hear me coming through it and take off and i'd hear him run and so i'd wait a while and i'd try to kind of circle around again and get on his tracks and i after a couple hours, he finally got tired of just me following him and he bedded down and he laid down behind this log and I'd been sneaking up the side of this hill and I could, I was watching his following his tracks and all of a sudden he started meandering. And so I knew he's probably looking for a good spot to bed down that he felt safe. And so I just went into the super sneak mode and I'm just like taking like one step and glassing and one step and glassing ahead of me. And I knew he was bedded somewhere just above me on this, this hillside. And all of a sudden I see these antlers sticking up. And so I stop and I'm looking through the binoculars and he's probably 10 yards. I'm like 30 feet from him and he's looking right towards me. He heard me coming, but he's behind the log and all I can see is his skull, the top of his skull and these six by six antlers sticking up behind this log. And so I have no shot. And so I'm looking, I'm like, okay, I know I'm, I'm pretty good with this thing. I could maybe shoot him right in the top of the head, but I'm like, if I just shoot a hair low, I'm going to hit that log and it's going to mess it up. And so I'm like, okay, he knows I'm here. He heard me coming eventually he's going to stand up and take off. And so I'm, I'm going to be ready. So I turn my scope down to two power. I'm just standing there holding right up between his antlers, just waiting for him to stand up and I'm going to have a shot at 10 yards. And when he stood up, he stood up and like jumped, like lunged at the same time. And all I could see, I pulled up and all I could see was just fur. Even on two power, he was too close. I had nothing but fur. And I'm like, I have no shot. I don't want to wound him. So I had to wait and he turned and ran and then he was like 30 or 40 yards and I, and then he was running straight away. So I didn't have a good shot. So I missed the whole thing and ended up falling in for two more hours until it got dark and had to turn around and leave. But that one, I was too close. Yeah. <laughs> Open sights would have been nice. Yeah. Oh, when I throw you up and all you see is fur, then, you know, yeah. <laughs> you would think that'd be the time to shoot, but probably not smart. <laughs> no, no, definitely didn't want to wound a big bull and not get something that big. You'd rather have another chance at him. Yeah. Well, I've got a brother-in-law who's, he's, uh, he's pretty into pistols and he's mentioned uh, a few times over the years that he wants to get into, to, he wants to hunt with his pistols. So 
mm-hmm. man, maybe maybe he'll listen to this, uh, and <laughs> and him and I will go on a pistol hunt. I could see that being a pretty pretty awesome adventure. So, oh yeah, something completely different and uh, just a different way of hunting and a different challenge. That's a lot of fun. Something different. I I pack. I'm actually looking at it right here. I pack a little. Uh, uh, Smith and Wesson makes like a super lightweight um, scandium frame uh, model. I think it's their 329. Um, let's see. I'm trying to find it here. Anyway, I, I wonder, I mean, is this even a, I see two uh, screws here. I assume I could mount a scope even on this little, uh, you know, it's only got maybe a four inch barrel. Um, but I mean, is it just legitimately something that if you were going to hunt with a pistol, you'd want to do it right and get a big, you know, 10, 12 well, inch the, barrel. Yeah. The longer barrel, the better, as far as your, your accuracy for sure. Um, you know, it depends on the distance you want to want to shoot. I mean, a four inch barrel would be fine at a hundred yards with a scope. You wouldn't need a, a very big scope, you know, for it for sure. But, uh, I mean, it's possible, but definitely the longer the barrel, the, the, the more velocity you have and the farther you can shoot because of the accuracy. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, well, uh, if we ever get to that point, I'm going to hit you up and get okay. Get a sweet give setup. a baller. I'll give you some give you some ideas. <laughs> so we've talked about it a few times, um, but this grizzly encounter that you had, and I I really want to spend some time because um, you know I think there's a lot of value that you can bring. Uh, you know, and I'm sure you've told this story a few times over the last. Uh, uh, I've told told it quite a few, probably pro- about a thousand times. Probably more. Yeah, probably yeah. more than you'd even <laughs> care to. Um, but I, I still think there's, uh, probably guys out there who maybe aren't familiar with it or, or want to hear more about it. Um, now, you know, I, I remember kind of watching this, this video that you had posted and, and you were, uh, you were hunting elk, right? Is that right? It was before the main, the regular hunting season. It was during both seasons. So I was just out scouting for elk. Is, did you, (laughs) you had a pistol, was it the same pistol that you're talking about or do you carry a different one for just recreational scouting or whatever it it was uh no it wasn't the 44 it was my 10 mm i have a, a rock island 1911 and a 10 mm and it's got a six inch barrel and it actually have a scope on that and that's what i shot the, the last elk with that i shot and i was carrying it for the reason of well not even thinking bear protection because i you know i kept my bear spray and i'm out there so much and i usually never have a problem so wasn't really concerned about that but i did have a wolf tag and I, you know, we have a lot of wolves in the area here and I've never shot a wolf. And I thought and it was wolf season was open. So I thought, well, if I get lucky and run into a wolf while I'm up here scouting elk, maybe I can get a shot on a wolf with this pistol. So it was a pistol set up for hunting with a long barrel. It's in a shoulder holster. It's got scope with scope covers on it. And it's not a quick draw bear type pistol. You know, I don't have, I can shoot, I can see underneath it to shoot through the open sights, but it's definitely not something you can get out quick and use on a bear in a last, you know, second type situation well that that makes a lot more sense and i i never got the details on the pistol but that's i I remember when i saw that video or i was reading your account of it i was kind of like man because you mentioned at one point you had the pistol and it was kind of thrown from you or something like that but um Mm -hmm. before before i talk out of the side of my mouth without knowing talk (laughs) just briefly kind of give that that recap of that story um you know kind of um whatever version you want to give at this point, since you've told it so many times. Oh, I, I don't have any problem tell, telling the whole thing. So yeah, it was just, uh, I finally had a, a day off of work and it was Saturday morning and I'm like, all right, I got to get out and start scouting for some elk before the, the general hunting season in a couple of weeks. 
So I got to the trailhead at uh, about an hour before daylight and got my gear on and started up the trail in the dark, which is how I almost always hunt. I want to be way farther up on top of the mountain where I think the animals are. Whether I'm hunting or just out to get photos or scouting, I want to be up there at daylight where most of the elk are. So I've got an hour hike in the dark and about three miles, three, four miles in, and it's just starting to get light. And I step out into an opening and I see a sow grizzly with two cubs at the upper end of this opening at this meadow. And we see each other about the same time. And she's, you know, 80 yards away, 100 yards away. And she immediately turns and just runs over the ridge and disappears. And so I'm thinking that that's good. This is a good bear. She doesn't like people. She went the other way with the cubs and I don't have to worry about her. I'll never see her again. So I waited about a minute and didn't see her. So I just turned to start heading up the trail in the opposite direction. And I just taken a few steps and I heard a noise and I turned and looked over my left shoulder and she had dropped the cubs and circled all the way around the ridge and came in behind me. And when I heard that noise and turned, she was coming off the ridge at like 35 or 40 yards, just wide open and had her ears laid back. She's low to the ground, just flying through the grass. And a grizzly bear can run 35 or 40 miles an hour, and she's just coming nonstop wide open. And I kind of expected a bluff charge, which is common with a bear. They're, they'll bluff charge up to you. They'll look at you. They'll snap their jaws or just try to see what you are, and then usually they leave. And I've had that happen a couple times. And so just instinctively, I pulled my bear spray. I had the bear spray hooked right on my chest here. I pulled the bear spray, pulled the safety out, thinking that's going to be a bluff charge, but I'll be ready just in case. And I pulled the safety, took like a second look up, and she's at 30 feet, still coming wide open. And then I realized that this is the real deal. And I start spraying, and just her momentum coming downhill like that just carried her right through the bear spray and just took a half a second. And there I was, so she was on top of me. And she bit me four or five times on my right arm and shoulder, and then she started, like, coughing, and you could tell the bear spray had gotten to her. And she turned and just busted out of there immediately and was gone. And I was like, wow, that was crazy. I just, you know, survived a bear attack and, you know, it just happened in like five seconds. It was done. How, how, he- so look- how, how heavy are we talking here for those of us that are completely ignorant to like grizzly bear sizes? Well, in, in Montana, um, average, you know, grizzly bears, like, you know, a mature grizzly bear be like four or 500 pounds, um, 400 probably for a sow for a female uh, male can get larger than that. Okay. And they can get larger, but usually around here, that's your average size. It's not like a thousand pound, you know, Alaskan brown bear or something, but definitely plenty big enough to tear you apart in a hurry. And, uh, yeah, just a huge animal coming, coming at you at 40 miles an hour. And you have like two seconds to make a decision. And I had, you know, I had a pistol right there on a shoulder holster as well. And, but I work for the forest service in the, in the rest of the year and I do all the trails engineering. And I cannot carry a pistol because of yeah. the federal regulation of having a, you know, unless you're a law, law enforcement officer, I can't have a, gov- a gun in a government vehicle and all that. So I just have bear spray as my only protection. So I practice with bear spray every day in the woods in the country. I'm thinking bear spray if I need it. And so I just instinctively drew the bear spray first and never even really thought about the pistol at that moment. It just happened. And then it was too late to go to plan B and, you know, all of a sudden she's on top of me and now it's over. So I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And I'm kind of looking at my arm. I've got, you know, half a dozen puncture wounds in there and I'm like, all right, time to head down and go to the hospital and get some stitches. And so I picked up my stuff and headed down the trail and it was, you know, five or six minutes, a few hundred yards down the trail and the trail kind of goes right along the stream and it's pretty loud and noisy. And I'm, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm kind of watching around beside me, but kind of, far enough now i'm feeling fairly safe 
And all of a sudden I just heard a noise and I turned and here's the bear again. And she's like 10 feet behind me charging this time again. And oh I had no gosh. warning, didn't hear her coming because of the noise of the stream. And there was no time to, I had bear spray in my hand still. And there was no time to even turn or do anything. It was like instantly she knocks me down. She's on top of me. And the first bite, I just went down to the, on my face, kind of protecting the back of my neck and kind of curled up on, on my face in the dirt. And her first bite was in my left arm, my forearm, and it broke the, I heard the crunch of the bone and then she ripped a bunch of tendons and muscle off her out. And just that pain and that sound made me kind of wince. And I was like, oh, and I made a noise and a movement. And that just triggered like a frenzy of biting. And she was just picking me up and shaking me around. She slammed me back down. She was had me pinned to the ground, biting me on my, my right arm, like 25 times on my shoulder. At one point, she bit me right in the side, and it luckily she didn't rip. She just bit in and released, but it like kind of turned me. And as it turned me in the air, I looked right into the side of her eye, and I just just like inches away. And I'm like, oh no, it's like right there, you know. And it's just I just pulled myself back into that position, face down, and tried to protect myself. And a claw caught the side of my head, and ripped about a five inch gash in my scalp just above my ear and so my eyes just instantly filled with blood and so here i am blinded i got a broken arm i got tendons hanging out i'm just face down trying to trying to ride this out i know i have no chance to to fight back but i i, I just want to make sure i don't get turned over and get you know my face exposed or my vitals and so i'm doing everything i can to stay in that position and not to move and i just like blocked out the pain and i could but all my other senses are heightened i could hear like the, her teeth crunching into the muscle of my arm and I could just smell her. She stunk so bad. And then at one point she just stopped and she's got me pinned to the ground and her claws are dug into my back and she's just sniffing the back of my neck and I can just feel the actual breath and hear it right there, just inches away from my hands were protected around the back of my neck. And then she would bite me on the shoulder and then she sniffed me and then bite me on the arm. And finally she just stepped off and, and disappeared. And I was just like, wow, what the heck's going on here, you know? And she's, she's just, I don't know if she's 10 feet away. I don't know if she'd left. So I just didn't move for like 30 seconds. And I just stayed there in that position. And then I got to thinking, if she goes and checks on her cubs, then comes back again, it's like, I'm not, my odds of surviving are going downhill for sure. And so I decided I had to do something. I had to protect myself. So I slowly reached in and for my pistol to get the pistol out underneath my arm. And it wasn't there. It had been ripped off during that attack. And so now I felt completely helpless. And I like, I need to do something. I got to get out of here. So I slowly reached up and wiped the blood out of my eyes and looked each direction. I didn't see her anywhere. So then I just got up real quick and saw my pistol laying there. I grabbed that out of the holster, hammer back, and she was nowhere to be seen. So I picked up my stuff and got out of there, started heading back down the trail. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a little crazy. If that didn't stop me from uh, hunting in grizzly bear country, I'm not <laughs> sure what will. Um, anyone that wants my Wyoming elk points is welcome to have them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, I started heading, heading back down the trail then, and uh, I got, you know, a few hundred or half mile down the trail, and I felt pretty safe that, you know, I wasn't going to have an encounter again. And so I stopped and checked my wounds on my arms and, and just to make sure I wasn't bleeding too bad, that I didn't need any kind of bandaging or anything. And heck, you know, I had blood dripping off my elbows and it was soaking through my shirt, but there was no actual like severed arteries or anything. So I knew I wasn't going to bleed to death. 
And I just wanted to get more distance and just, you know, get down to the truck to where I felt 100% safe. And so it was about a three-mile hike out of there. It probably took me 45 minutes. And I stopped a couple times to check my wounds again. And by the time I got to the truck, you know, I had all this time to think about it. And I'm, I'm okay, I survived this. You know, I'm going to have to go to the hospital. I got a broken arm. I'm going to have some surgery. But I made it through this, and I'm alive and well, you know, or at least alive. So I got to the truck, and... There was another vehicle in the parking lot, and it's Saturday morning, bow season, so I know there's going to be other people coming up here this weekend. And so I thought, I need, I need to write a note and put it on the bulletin board just to let other people know there's an aggressive bear in the area and, you know, beware. God, God bless so, you, Todd Orr. You've just been attacked by a sow twice, and you've got skin hanging off your body and you're bleeding. And you're, you're telling me that you got back to that trailhead and your initial, one of your thoughts was, I better let, I better leave a note for everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I think that was my first thought. I mean, oh my I gosh. just was like, I did, well, I'm thinking about what I just went through and it's like, I am so lucky to be alive and this is, you know, it's just a terrible experience. And it's like, I, I don't certainly don't want someone else to go through this, or maybe it's some guy with this kid, you know, or who knows, or some younger people up here that aren't aware of the bears even in the area. So I just, I mean, I it, ma- had to makes, do something. That, it makes perfect sense. And like, you know, obviously that's the right thing to do, but just, I just think of myself in that situation and I would have been so just, I think I would have been so traumatized that I just, <laughs> you know, that, that would have been the last thing from my mind. And that's, that's incredible actually that you, that, that, well, that you were you. still coherent enough to, um, well, you know, having 45 minutes to hike out of there and, yeah. you know, and you're calming down and everybody is just like, oh, he's in shock and everything. And it's like, I, personally, I don't feel like I was in shock at all after like the first five minutes. It's like, okay, reality hits and you're like, all right, I just got to get out of here. I got to survive. I got to go to the hospital. I can't undo this. It's done. And, you know, you're going to make it. So I got down there. I felt like I was thinking fine. I said, okay, I tried to get in my truck and get a, I got some sticky notes in there and I'm trying to get. I can't even get really into my truck. It's kind of, you know, just trying to reach up in there with a broken arm. And and so I'm trying to get a sticky note out and trying to write a note. It's just blood dripping all over the note. So I realized it's, you know, it's just, in, it's not legible. It's not going to work. So I gave up on that idea. And then I'm like, all right, well, I'll head down to the hospital. And I'm like, well, I better record this real quick for a couple of my hunting buddies before they, you know, wash all the blood off. So I took the quick 30 second video. I took a couple photos and then jumped in the truck and, had about a 30 minute drive to the hospital. Are you, I know that that video since then is what really um, escalated this whole situation, at least social, social media wise. Are you, are you glad that you took that video like hundred percent or has there ever been like, is there ever been any problems that have come up because of that? Well, no, I think it's uh it's been good because I think people seeing this and getting, you know, my name out there, people to talk to me and do interviews like this, I think it's going to help other people as far as just bear safety and bear awareness. I mean, I have so many friends that, you know, didn't worry about the bear situation, really. They didn't carry a handgun during bow season. And there's so many of my friends now that are just like, your story, you know, hit close to home. And they're now packing a pistol. They're now making sure they have bear spray as well. And just, I think it just a general safety and awareness type thing has definitely been a positive sign of all of this you know i wouldn't i certainly wouldn't do it again wouldn't do it over for this that's for sure but (laughs) but uh i'm glad i can do something to you know to share that out there with people and maybe it'll save someone else's life or saving it you know prevent an encounter with a bear if someone's a little bit more prepared and thinking ahead 
So I think everyone probably has an opinion on bear spray versus pistols, and almost 100% of them haven't been attacked by a grizzly bear, probably. Uh, right. And I'm sure you've, that being said, you've answered this question one million times, but for the <laughs> one million and, and, and first time, um, are you 100% packing a pistol everywhere now in grizzly bear country? Do you still believe in bear spray, or what is your answer to that question? I am packing both. I pack, I always pack the bear spray and I'm always packing a pistol now as well. And I've got a short barrel 44. That's a lightweight four inch barrel. I can carry on my hip. That's easy access to. And I've also got a shorter barrel 10 mm that I could carry on a chest holster if I wanted. So I've got something besides the big long barrel of the scope. If I'm in bear country, I'm going to always have that with me, but I'm, I'm a big fan of bear spray still. And it, you know, it didn't work a hundred percent in my situation, but it definitely minimized the length of that first attack. And I know that it, it works in most situations. It's uh, something that puts a big cloud out there of this pepper spray that gets into their sinus cavities. And bears have the best smell of any of the, the mammals out there. And it just affects them in a hurry and all of their, their sinuses and, and it, they're hard to, it can't breathe. It closes down their airways. It's very uncomfortable for them and they want to get out of that situation. In my situation, it was just rare because the bear never slowed. It never bluff charged. It never stopped to look to see what I was. It just came through at 40 miles an hour. And maybe it didn't take a breath at that instant or it took a second for it to affect it. I just think about how my adrenaline was running and I didn't even, you know, feel any pain after the first bite. You know, if this bear is adrenaline running in an attack situation, it took a few seconds before that became uncomfortable and, but then it left. So I definitely believe in the bear spray and, in an attack situation, you know, a lot of people don't carry guns. Maybe they're not into the gun thing. So you definitely have to have a bear spray. And I'm not sure that a, a pistol is going to work for a lot of people either. I mean, people are like, oh, I can shoot into a target. I'm a good mm -hmm. shot. I've got 16 rounds with my Glock. But at the same time, if you have a bear charging, you probably have like two rounds because you got like two seconds <laughs> and then it's on you. So you're either going to have two shots that may hit it or may not, unless you practice in a a stressful situation where something's coming at you, you know, like that. It's, it's a totally different feeling when you're right in the middle of it than just thinking about it. And a lot of people see a bear on TV and it's like this grizzly kind of loping across the field, you know, in a movie or something. And it's like, when you got something coming at you at 35 miles an hour, it's a completely different thing. You've got something 400 pounds with teeth and claws and it's low to the ground and it just, you get two seconds to make a decision and whether you get a good shot off or not, it's just kind of a 50, 50 chance there, unless yeah. you, practiced a lot and you're ready for it and you're prepared and then a bear like a bear's skull is shaped kind of like a missile shape and it's oblong and so things easily ricochet off of it you can even shoot one right in the eye and it's got a big curve in that skull that turns right back out to the side so their brain is in the back half of their skull and unless you've got a side shot or a shot from the back you're probably not going to hit the brain or the spinal cord is you know protected by all the stuff in front, the chest muscles and the bone and the fur and the hair and, and the hide. And the penetration is, is very difficult on an animal that big with that kind of muscle and bone mass. And unless you, even if you shot one through the heart first shot, you know, I've seen deer that ran a hundred yards with a bullet through the heart. They just didn't know they were dead yet, you know, and you know, it takes only a couple seconds for a bear to tear you to pieces. So there's no guarantee that anything that you use is going to work for sure. There's nothing that's a guarantee hundred percent, but I think having the bear spray just in case having a pistol as a backup in case maybe you got knocked down and you lost the bear spray or you got flipped over and now it's got you pinned face down and maybe you can get a couple shots off. But 
I think uh, practicing, the biggest thing is to practice whatever it is, whether it's a pistol, make sure you practice, practice under stress. If it's bear spray, know how to use it, know how to pull the safety practice just randomly. What I'll do, I'm out there walking in the woods and I'll just think about it and I'll just pretend that all of a sudden there's a bear. And so I'll pull my bear spray, pull the safety and be ready just to see how quick I could get it out to try to catch me off guard. Mm -hmm. If you've got an expired bear spray or you can get a the bear spray that's uh, inert that, you know, it doesn't affect you, practice with it. And because it has kind of a little bit of a kick, you start pointing and squeeze it, it'll like raise three or four feet up. So you want to shoot a little bit low. So there's a lot of things there that I think people need to look at and to keep in mind. And biggest thing is just paying attention out there in the woods and make sure that you don't run into that situation. You know, do your best not to try to avoid it if possible and see that animal first and back out of the situation. Yeah. I mean, if grizzly bears weren't the most terrifying creature on the planet before this, they are now. Um, <laughs> so many stories. So I'm actually looking at my bear spray that I've got right now and mm -hmm. I'm, hundred percent sure this is expired now that you say that uh yeah they, trying to they find have it. i think about a five-year expiration usually and if you if it's wore off it's probably expired and <laughs> well if so i got this one when i was fighting wildland fire and we uh i was with a hotshot crew and we got flown into mm -hmm. uh the wyoming <clears throat> backcountry just, mm -hmm. just out of jackson hole and they they uh, gave everyone there, and so yeah, this one I just found it expired twenty fourteen. Um, yeah, you're a little behind there, yeah. so you might want to upgrade that. <laughs> but maybe that's a maybe that's a good one, like you were saying, to test. And I think that's a key uh, takeaway from this is you know carrying bear spray is one thing, understand or even a pistol, um, understanding and being proficient with it is the only part that really matters, though. Um, exactly, regardless yep. of what you're using. Um, man, yeah. so many questions and I'm not, so I don't even know that this is fair to ask, but I mean, if you were, if you were going back and not that you want to relive this anymore, but I mean, would you going back, would you have done things differently or is, was it just one of those situations? Like I did what I knew was right at the time and that's what I would have done a hundred times over or what, what do you, how do you answer I, I that? Think yeah, I mean, you know, you look back at it and you're just like, well, you know, of course I wouldn't do this or that. But in that situation, you wouldn't know that because you right. didn't have the, the facts. So, you know, in that situation, having to do it over again, I would I felt completely safe. The bear ran over the ridge and I'm like, OK, she I mean, she didn't just look at me and she just immediately ran. And I'm like away and I'm like, perfect. This bear does not like people. I was not concerned anymore at all. I watched for a minute, didn't steer. I was 99 percent sure I would never see that bear again. So I'm going on my way like I normally would. And then when she'd circle around and charged me and just completely surprised me in that sense. And I pulled bear spray instinctively. Had I pulled the pistol, I had probably got two shots off. You know, it, with the pistol I had, I may not even got it out in time because it had scope covers and a scope and it's in a shoulder holster. And it's just like I said, it's not a quick draw thing. I may not have even got it out. So I probably would have had no chance with the pistol. Had I had a, a good pistol for bear protection, I probably would have got it out and had two shots yeah. and, you know, picturing in my mind that bear, you know, coming low to the ground through the brush and the grass down the hill, ears laid back. And you're just like, so surprised. It's like, maybe, you know, I'm not, I've shot 28 elk with a pistol. I'm a good shot with a pistol, but had I, I hadn't practiced shooting a pistol at a bear charging at me, you know, under a stressful situation. I don't know if I'd have hit it for sure. I think I might've, but it probably would have hit it in the leg and or shoulder or maybe missed it. And, you know, maybe that would have been enough. Maybe the bang would have scared that bear off. Maybe just a wound of the shock to a shoulder to a leg would have been enough to turn her. 
But then again, at the same time, I didn't feel any pain when I was getting chewed on. So who knows what a barren adrenaline rush is going to feel. And they're used to fighting and a lot more pain than a, you know, they can take a lot more pain than a human. So that may have just made her more mad. And now she's going to fight to the death. So there's no guarantee that that would have been the right situation. And there's certainly no guarantee. And I don't feel confident that I could have dropped her for sure in her tracks. I wouldn't, you know, I, I still feel that the bear spray was my better chance of stopping her, even though it didn't work 100%. It definitely helped. And in most situations, that bear spray is going to work because that bear is going to bluff charge likely, and you've got a time to spray it, and it's all of a sudden there's a cloud, and that bear get, you know smells that, and it's like, oh, I don't like this. I'm backing out of the situation. It's probably going to stop the bear you know, 95% of the time or something, or so 99% of the time. I'm not sure what the odds are, but I definitely would go bear spray first and have the pistol as a backup, hoping I don't have to use either. But you know, having them both makes me feel more comfortable back in the woods, and... I don't want to give up what I do. So I'm back in the woods. I work in the woods. I recreate in the woods and I just have to pay a little bit more attention and try to avoid that situation. Was there a point there and, and, and we can, we can wrap up here cause you know, you've, but was there, was there a point like hundred percent that you ever said in the middle of that, this is it, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm, this is how I die. Or was it never really that much of a reality or did that cross your mind? Well, you know, I've had a couple people ask me that in other interviews and they're like, did you think you were going to die? And I just automatically responded. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was going to, you know, lay in there. I think I'm going to die. This is it. But the more I got to thinking about that, just actually in the last couple of weeks, I don't really recall that going through my head. I think I'm going to die. I think I was so into like survival mode and like, you that you don't, you don't think about death. You just think about that instant. It's just like, don't move, don't move, don't, she's going to leave, don't breathe, she's going to leave, you know, protect yourself, don't let her flip you over. It was all these other things that go through your head about not giving up and not not dying and, and making sure you survive and doing the right thing and just the 110% focus of getting through that situation to where I don't think I had like a flash of death or anything. And I, I know I've said in a couple interviews, yeah, I think I was going to die. I was worried about it, but the more I thought about that, I don't think that ever came into my head. I think it was more of just you're 100% focused on getting through that situation and surviving. And that's yeah. all that was going through my head at that time. Do you know, uh, um, you obviously notified people when you got out. Does anything happen to the bear at that point or what is their protocol or do they just, well, she goes about her life and we don't, no one goes and finds her or anything like that. Or is she, what is the story with the bear? Do you know? Well, when I uh, got down to the hospital, and there was a sheriff's office. I'd called the hospital ahead of time and, and uh, let them know that, that I was on my way with a bear attack. So they knew, you know, knew I was coming. I wouldn't be surprised. So there was a sheriff's officer and a nurse and a doctor waiting for me at the emergency entrance. And I, excuse me, the sheriff's officer, they, you know, they, the word was out then. So fish and game and fit the interagency grizzly bear study team went back up there the next day, I believe on horseback and looked for her and they did not see her. And if she had been, if they, if they had ran into her and she charged them, they probably would have yeah. you know, put her down, <laughs> but they never ran into her, never saw her. So as far as I know, she's uh, still out there today. And, you know, I could, you know, be there every, an area that she may be every year. It's hard to say. So haven't heard of any other encounters in that general area, obviously not in that general area sense, but there's a, there's a scenario that has a lot of grizzly and there was a, a week before my attack, a couple guys, bow hunters on horseback, were charged by a sow grizzly with cubs, and they shot at her, and she ran off. And they, you know, the fish and game 
you know, investigated that and they never found any blood or whatever. I'm not sure of all the details, but as far as, you know, that could have been the same bear. Maybe she was slightly wounded or just had a fear or not a fear, but, uh, you know, didn't, did not like people now. And so that's why she attacked me or was more aggressive. It's hard to say yeah. about three or four years before my attack, there was, a three people that were attacked in that same drainage by a sow with cubs. And so it's a possibility. I mean, bears live a long life. It's a possibility that was the same bear as well. And she's used to people and she doesn't like them. So yeah, isn't a lot there, of unanswered questions. Isn't their lifespan? I mean, like, it's not like a mule deer that's like 10 years. I mean, bears are like, are they like closer to 25 years? I want to say, or? I think they're, yeah, 20, 20, 25 years for a bear. And yeah, I'm sure it's probably shorter in the wild just because of natural things that can happen, but, yeah. but they can live a long life and yeah, not uncommon to have a, a 10 or 15 or 15 year old bear out there for sure. So talk about your reaction to the state of Wyoming having possibly their first grizzly bear hunt in the lower 48 here this year. Well, I'm a, I'm, yeah, I'm a totally a pro hunting and a pro wildlife management. I mean, every species needs to be managed properly depending on the population and the area and the territory. And so I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to have a, a limited tags out there for a grizzly bear hunt. And um, I know Montana has been talking about it for, for years and hopefully that'll come through as well. Um, I have no interest in, in hunting a grizzly bear. Um, I've shot a couple black bear in my lifetime, you know, 20 years ago. And, but you know, I have no interest in chasing down a grizzly. I don't need to get revenge or something to feel better about it. I have nothing against grizzlies. They're a part of our natural habitat around here, but like any animal, I think they need to be managed. And there are a lot more people in the woods now, which means when you have a lot more bears and a lot more people, you're going to have more encounters. And I see more and more. I think there was four in this four, uh, bear attacks in this area last fall that I'm aware of within an hour and a half of where I live. And most of them, I think all of them during bow season, if I recall. So there's a, they, they need to have some fear in them. I think if we had a tag, you know, out there for some, a couple grizzly bears every year, people be hunting them. There'd be more movement and you know, stuff to chase them away to get a little fear in them maybe. And maybe we'd have less encounters Yeah, I and mean, maintain the population to where it's, you know, manageable for both people and to still have some, wildlife out there still have some bears out there for people to see that just want to encounter one and, and see it from a distance kind of thing yeah you know i i mentioned this i think i think is the last podcast i did with uh, luke sterling um you know and I'll, I'll mention it and that was relative to wolves and i'll mention it again and and i actually heard cody rich uh use the same verbiage um but you know it's for me the best way to think of it is you can't you can't play god and when I say play God, I hope everyone understands what I mean by that. You can't manage every other animal resource that we have and then and then just let one, which happens to be the ultimate top predator in this case, mm-hmm. un, go unmanaged. It, right. it just isn't – the math won't work um, either. Like you said, you know, they're going to decimate uh, elk herds or we're going to lose hunting opportunities or, you know – they're, they're going right. to, the, the people, you know, they're going to have too many, inter- you know, in this case, they're going to have interactions with people because like you said, they have no fear in them. They have no respect. Um, you know, and, and, and I don't want to put it like that because I, I don't think that she was being disrespectful. Um, you know, she was just doing what, what she was instinctually probably supposed to right. do. Yeah. She had, she had cubs and she yeah. wanted to protect her cubs. It was, I think it was kind of unusual that she had come that distance to, to come back and circle around behind me, but that was just her personality. And, and like I said, maybe she had been 
winged by that hunter a week before and she was wounded. And so now it was like, she's that much more aggressive because of an injury or because of an encounter with people in the past. So, well, and one one of the other points to all this, I think, especially with the Grizzlies and I, I actually, it was good timing, um, Epic Outdoors with Jason Carter. They just released a podcast like today or yesterday, um, discussing the grizzly bear hunt in wyoming with one of the biologists up there and i didn't get all the way through it but but that that was one of the points that they were making is is that uh you know these these grizzly bears are being killed um already by some of the the state wildlife uh people for various reasons whether they're they're trouble bears or you know they they get into um you know you know urbanized places or whatever they're you know they they like you, you know, you, they attacked a person and they go up and they have to put one down. Um, and so, you know, he, the biologist made the point that, you know, if we can just, you know, if we're already killing, say we're killing a dozen bears a year, um, you know, if we can just turn those into hunting permits and, and, you know, they're going to earn quite a bit of, of money to manage the resources. And that's why hunting works. Oh, absolutely. You know, because yeah, I think that's a great thing about hunting is the yeah. fact that all of that money that comes in from sales of tags and, and, you know, for a community, not just for a community with gear and guns and licenses, but all, but the license itself, yeah. that money can go back into wildlife management. Yep. That's, that's exactly how hunting is conservation, um, in my mm-hmm. opinion, but exactly. Yeah. That, that hunt, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out this year. I probably will not be throwing my name in the app, uh, either for a hunt just because of the, the sheer price. I, I would, I would probably take a chance at a grizzly bear tag if I had the opportunity and had the money, but the non-resident uh, permit fee, I think, is going to be around six thousand um, dollars. Right. <laughs> and so, and there's <laughs> only spending. yeah, and there's only twelve permits. I don't know that they're doing a bonus point system, so it's probably going to be okay. constantly be terrible odds because I'm sure that'll be pretty sought after. Yeah. But. Well, my my hunting focus is mostly elk and maybe a nice nice mule deer buck or something is yeah. my two big things and. I, got, I don't have enough time out there to, you know, spend anyway. So if I get some <laughs> hunting time, I want to go chase an elk out down and try to get some, you know, 200 pounds of meat in my freezer as well. So Awesome. Um, well, I, I sure appreciate you coming on. I want to wrap up here and I, I still have a few questions for you. Um, where, where are a couple places that people can find you? Um, you know, I, I know you, you have the social media. Um, is that, uh, what was your, is your social media just your name? Yeah, um, like Instagram, it's uh, Todd underscore or, and you can find me on Facebook pretty easily. Uh, I've got a website. I built custom knives. Yeah, and talk I've got about a website. Those. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I've been building custom knives for 30 years, and uh, SkybladeKnives.com is the website. Uh, the name just Skyblade Knives, and I use the best stainless steel that's available, and I have probably 30 or 40 different hunting and fishing models. I do some steak knives and kitchen knives. Lifetime warranty, the best stainless steel you can, you can buy right now, and I stand behind them. And uh, people just anytime you Google me now, you can pretty much find my find all my information pretty easily. So I'm easy to get a hold of. <laughs> did you uh, silly random backup question? Did you have a knife on you when you got attacked? Um, I always carry a knife, yeah, but I didn't have a knife that I was going to try to attack a bear with. And that's no. yeah, I don't that's think a, that's I don't think that's a winning battle. Yeah. To, uh, take a take a face to face with a hand to hand combat with a grizzly is probably not a winning no. battle, but no. just going <laughs> to irritate her more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so the knives, and then uh, I mean, 
maybe just relative to your experience, I mean, is there like a centralized or one good place or maybe like a, if people want to learn more about bear awareness, just in general, do you have a place that you kind of send people or what's your answer to that? Well, I, I guess I haven't really looked into that enough to see where the, where I think the best information is, but I know there is a lot of information online out there and just Googling, you know, bear safety, bear awareness, bear spray, you can find a, a lot of information on what to do, what not to do, bear behavior, um, you know, how to, you know, what to do in the case of a grizzly bear versus a, a black bear or a mountain lion, whatever the case might be. There's a lot out there. And off the top of my head, I don't have a specific site to, to send people to, but um, it's easy to find. There's a lot of information out there for people. Yeah. And mo- that said, most of the states and any state that has grizzly bear, um, you know, populations. So probably uh, Wyoming for sure, Montana for sure. And then even Idaho, they're going to have, um, you know, if you just hit up the fishing game, they're going to have yeah, some sort yeah, of yeah. Mon- Montana fish, wildlife and parks has lots of information on their website as well. Okay. Perfect. So we, I just do a real quick fire round of questions here that I ask kind of everyone the same questions. So I'll just jump into those. Um, and okay. I, I think I know the answer to this one, but elk, mule deer or antelope. I'm an elk guy all the way to yeah. start. Yep. That's first on the, on the list. Um, I know you uh, haven't picked up a bow in a while, but back when you were, were you a fixed blade or probably a fixed blade back then, or did you shoot a mechanical? Um, I shot a fixed blade back then. I just got back into shooting the bow a few years ago. I had a couple shoulder surgeries and oh, I nice. can pull the bow again. And then I kind of got down for about the last year after my bear attack, but I can pull a bow, go, bow again now. And I'd like to get back into hunting a little bit more. And my latest setup does have mechanical broadheads. Okay. What, uh, what is your dream hunt? My dream hunt? Uh, well, uh, my brother just moved to Alaska last year. So I'm kind of looking forward to get up to Alaska and try something up that direction. I don't really have a specific dream hunt in mind, but I want to experience uh, something a little different species, different area, and a little bit larger animals up there. But yeah. Like I said, my, my number one focus has always been elk and you know, I'm, I'm happy. I don't need some special tag, some special hunt in another area or another country or another state. I'm, if I can just get, you know, a half a dozen days out of the year to get out here and chase some elk around in the back country, I'm, I'm pretty happy. That's awesome. Um, what about a backcountry food item? What do you, uh, what's something that you like? Well, it's kind of funny you ask that because most people say I don't, I don't, you know, I don't usually take food or water <laughs> even in the woods. I'm everybody says I just photosynthesize when the sun's out, so that keeps <laughs> me going. I kind of never run out of energy. I just do like 20 miles all day, and I might have a granola bar in my pack, but I rarely get around to taking the time to eat it. And I'll eat some snow on the way, but if I was camping out or something, um, I'm usually taking something that's lightweight that I can. Oh, usually I don't even cook anything. I'll just have something I can throw in the pocket and munch on to get me through. I really don't. I need minimal food for a few days in the woods. I can get by pretty easily without running out of energy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I'm the opposite. I'm the guy that if I was going out for like a day shed hunt right now, I would have probably, you know, anywhere north of 5,000 calories in my pack. <laughs> just... No, I can go. I go all day, whether it's at work from daylight to dark or hunting all day. I don't eat a thing usually. I'll have a granola bar in my pack as a backup, but I rarely ever get to it. I just go all day and never have an, never have an energy issue. And then what, uh, what is your, what would be your go-to, um, backcountry? I usually ask what's your favorite, uh, all around rifle caliber, um, you know, maybe with you, it's a little more obvious. Um, but what, I mean, 
What's what's your go-to uh, hunting caliber? Well, I'll, I'll go back to like when I was a kid. I, my whole family grew up with 270s. Everybody, all four of us, my mom, dad, my brother, and I all had 270s, what we used for all of our big game hunting. So I still have that. Um, once I got into, you know, pistol hunting, I obviously the 44 is what I've been using for years on all my pistol hunts. And I shot the one elk with a 10 mm. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I have to say the pistol hunting with a 44 is my thing. That's your thing, man. I've uh, got a, I've got a 460. I got a 460 Smith and Wesson with like a 12 inch barrel just to see how far I can shoot out with that thing. But I haven't hunted with it, but I have this giant beast just to, it's just fun to shoot something that's <laughs> got about twice the power of a 44 Magnum is pretty amazing. Yeah, that is, <laughs> but not for hunting. I, I haven't hunted with it yet. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'll let, I have one last question that I always ask you, but okay. first, um, I want to give you credit, Todd. I want to give you credit. Um, you know, first speaking of the pistols, I want to give you credit for, um, taking 28 bull elk with a pistol. I still, uh, that's Thank just, you. that's just incredible. And that's, um, you know, there's, everyone has their little accomplishments and stuff and, but that, <laughs> that one's, that one's pretty unique and, uh, and, and pretty impressive. Um, I also want to give you credit for just at a young age, uh, you know, being, being willing to take on the backcountry. you know, it's, uh, even for me, someone who loves it now, it was, a, you know, it was, it was kind of a terrifying place. And, uh, and so, you know, it says a lot about, uh, you know, the type of vigor and the type of, uh, you know, uh, attitude that you have to take on the backcountry at that young of an age. I think it has a lot to do with how you grow up and how your family is. And, you know, just, that was just something I was used to from a young age and it just, it, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So yeah. it seemed pretty normal, pretty natural. And but then, thank you. yeah. And then the last thing, uh, you know, obviously I think that I want to give you credit for is, um, and just going through, going through an experience like that, that you had with the bear and then, and then even more so being, um, so willing to continue to talk about it and spread, spread awareness um because i know that you know someone out there is going to hunt in grizzly bear country this year and hopefully you know one little thing that you've uh talked about here or there uh, will be the difference in them you know having a, a good experience around bears rather than a you know a bad experience and so mm-hmm. um, man just can't say enough and appreciate you and and give you credit for coming on and and uh you know being that guy that's that's willing to uh think of others and help others so well, thanks. Yeah, I just want to let people know that it can happen to you. You know, you're always just you're always thinking uh, the odds are one in a million, but um, it happened to me. It can happen to anybody. And be prepared, have the right equipment, and practice with it. And just pay attention in the woods. You know, pull your take your uh, earbuds out of your ears or your headphones off so you can hear something coming behind you and be ready for it. Perfect. Last question, Todd. Why yep. do you why do you hunt the backcountry? Uh, I just love getting high up and looking in the mountains and looking around and down over into the valleys and the streams and just the views from up high. I love it. And I love being away from the people. I try to get as far away from the trailheads as I can minimize the people. I always hunt by myself because I like that experience. And whether it's hunting or hiking, I just like the experience on my own and everything, every decision I make is my decision. And um, I just, I just love something about the back country and, and the woods. It's just a wonderful place to be in the mountains. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding back country podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends, but the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. 
For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.